this is Dr. Walsnaka, this is Tooth Be Told. And this is Dr. Kyle Dumpert. We're here today with Dr. Michael Kaner, a good friend of mine through Pennsylvania Academy of General Dentistry. He's agreed to come on and talk to us about pretty exciting things, uh, experiences with his dental career. But uh, why don't you say hello, Dr. Kaner? Good afternoon to everybody. So, Glad to be just here. A little a little background on Dr. Kaner, graduated from Tufts in 1985, did a one-year GPR at Sacred Heart Hospital in Allentown, Pennsylvania. He received his FAGD in 1993, uh, which is his fellowship with the Academy of General Dentistry. He then received his mastership from the Academy of General Dentistry in 2019. He is a trained forensic dentist. He's a part of the Pennsylvania State Dental Identification Team. He's also a part of the Federal Disaster Response Team, DMORT. Uh, he's on teaching staff at Sacred Heart Hospital to help train GPR dental students or dentists. Uh, he was a previous president for the Pennsylvania Academy of General Dentistry. He's members of the American Dental Association, AGD, American Academy of Forensic Sciences, Sciences American Society of Forensic Odontology, and he also has uh, is licensed in a couple areas to to practice law. Did, did I cover everything there? Yeah, a little bit too much. I'm getting bash. I'm getting embarrassed. <laughs> no, he he makes us feel. He makes me feel lazy. Like I, I I need to just go find another degree and just attach it onto mine because you you literally just blown me out of water. So that's awesome. I guess I grew up and my father was the generation that left high school during World War II. And he had an expression that an education is something that nobody can ever take away from you. Very true. And and I know he enjoyed all of us at graduations and just stressed the education. Um, I've been lucky in terms of a lot of things that I've done. One of the things that I, I took a course about 20 years ago that was given by the Armed Forces Institute of Forensic Pathology. And it was basically, there are two courses that are the gold standard for forensic dentistry. The Armed Forces one and the University of Texas also gives it. It's a week-long course where it's the introduction of forensic dentistry. And anyone who's interested in it really needs to take that class. And then there are some other ones. Uh, University of Detroit, you can, once you've taken a few of them, then you can get your feet wet and you try to get connected with a coroner in your area. Um, when I took the course, one of the things that was starting was they were talking about this organization that was going to go out for disaster response. And it all stems from a plane crash about 25 years ago on Long Island, TWA Flight 800. It crashed and, and killing everyone on board. And what happened was it took the coroner about a month to identify all the bodies. And the families were really upset. They wanted to bury their loved ones. And they weren't able to because it was such a delay. And they approached Congress. And Congress passed legislation that set up uh, the, family, the Family Assistance Act. And what that did, not getting too far in the weeds, is it divided the country into 10 regions. Each region has a, um, they set up the National Disaster Medical Service. In that business, if there was ever a disaster in that area, we are Pennsylvania's Region 3, which is Pennsylvania, Delaware, Maryland, Virginia, West Virginia, and the District of Columbia. Anything that happens in that area that overwhelms local authorities, the National Disaster Medical Service, you'll refer to NDMS, will go in. And they have three different divisions. They've got DMAT, which is a medical assistance team. They go in on the ground and they can set up medical clinics anywhere. VMAT, which is veterinary, which when you read about a hurricane coming through, who's taking care of the animals? And DMORT, which is what I was involved in, the Disaster Mortuary Operational Response Team. 
they'll go in and, and assist the local authorities if there is a mass fatality incident, what's called an MFI. Um, it can be a plane crash. It can be a fire, such as in Rhode Island many years ago that was in a nightclub. Um, and what happened was they do background checks on everyone to make sure they vet you. And what will happen is the local authorities will say, look, this overwhelms us. The governor will appeal to the federal government, and then they'll send DMORD in. And DMORD's been activated from hurricanes, floods, fires. Um, it really got it. 9-11 was one of the times that it was very much involved. Um, the Pentagon, if, for those who may be younger and not remember, there were four planes that crashed 9-11. One crashed into the Pentagon. That was taken care of by the military. There were two into the World Trade Towers in New York. And there was one in Western Pennsylvania, United Flight 93. DMORT was involved in the last three of them. I was activated that morning to go out to Flight 93. And we spent the next week working with there. Now, the DMORT team is not just forensic dentists. There are anthropologists, pathologists, medical legal investigators, funeral directors. There are dental assistants on the team, fingerprint experts. Everyone works together as a team to help identify the victims and bring them home. Um, Can I just stop real quick and ask sure. what, you know, just for the, our audience, what is a dental for, uh, forensic uh, specialist? Okay. Um, it's, it's not technically a specialty. Right. But it's not, it's not recognized. But what it does is forensic dentistry can be used to help um, in dental malpractice cases. It can be used to identify victims or uh, individuals. Um, or it can also be in mass fatality incidents. What we'll do is we'll take the dental, we'll use the dental records to help identify somebody. People can be identified through visual means, fingerprints, DNA, or dental. Well, sometimes if there's a mass fatality incident where something's burned up or um, human remains are not visual or it's been decom decomposed, you can't use visual. And sometimes fingerprints may also be destroyed. DNA can take a while or it used to take a lot longer. So dental can be very quickly done. Um, I've, for my local coroner, I work and I've been called out on cases where they may find a body that was in the ground for a long period of time and dental can give them identification within a, a couple hours or almost instantaneous if we have the records. You divide into three parts. There's the anti-mortem records where you'll see somebody went to the dentist, you'll put the chart up, you'll look at the x-rays and you'll chart what's called an odontogram of 32 teeth. You think of you, like where the fillings were, what surfaces were filled, and you'll put that on as well as an x-ray. That's the antemortem. Then you'll take what human remains were recovered and do a charting of the dental there. We'll take x-rays, we'll do a visual examination, and compare the two. And then the third section is doing a comparison, where it's unidirectional. What I mean by that is you may find on the antemortem that somebody had an MO on number two, but on the postmortem they had a crown. Yeah. Over time, they may have had a broken tooth. It became larger. So it can become, it can go from a DO to a crown or an MO to a crown. It can get larger. And that's as long as there are no unexplained discrepancies. So you look at that and say, oh, I can understand how it got larger. That's fine. If the anatomy looks the same, if the root structure looks the same, what would be different would be if you looked at it and said, wait a minute, we have a crown on the antemortem, but postmortem on the same tooth is an amalgam. Or a, rest, or a composite, you'll say, wait a minute, that can't be. And the identification for legal means, if you're going to sign it, has to be no unexplained discrepancies. Mm -hmm. So what happens is you've got the antemortem, the postmortem, and the comparison. And every 
mass disaster is different in terms of what you need. Um, for instance, let me compare. I was deployed for 9-11, but I was also for Katrina before this. For 9-11, unfortunately, when all those people were in the tower that got killed, you had families coming with all the dental records, what they call the anti-mortem records. They'd been to the dentist. Here's what they had. And the limiting factor was when the bodies were recovered, comparing that. So we had potentially sometimes up to five to 7,000 records of people bringing in. Compare that to, say, Katrina, where most of the people who died in Louisiana or Mississippi drowned and you had intact bodies, but we had trouble getting the dental records because a lot of these dental offices had been destroyed in the hurricane. Mm -hmm. So we had to play detective. And a lot of times, the anti-mortem and post-mortem, you'd have to look at the records and play detective. Oh, the person went to an oral surgeon. Maybe they have a Panorex or have a cone beam CAT scan that we can get. Um, on the postmortem, we were calling employers and saying, oh, this person worked for, let's say, a casino. The dental insurance is X, X insurance company. Can you tell us what dental work was done on this patient? So we have to track it down and we would look at records and say, wait a minute, this person had, um, an all on four case and it had the patient's name in the denture. Well, in Mississippi, we might have called the prostodontist down there and said, hey, do you have a patient with this name that you did an all-on-four? Now, keep in mind, Ms. Katrina was 15 years ago. All-on-four cases were not as common as they are now. So you have to be detective and you have to look outside the box. When we were looking at maps, we were saying, okay, somebody had a root canal. Was it done by the GP or an endodontist? We were getting records from different offices. So that's why in New York, the problem was, the limiting factor was the post-mortem remains. Katrina, it was getting the anti-mortem records. But you need both to compare it to to be able to do a dental identification. Can, can I ask a, a question? Sure, again? go right ahead. I mean, this is really fascinating to me. Do you think, and this is just a, your own opinion, but do you think that your life would be a lot easier if we had like a centralized record-keeping area, right? So all the dentists may be sent it to one location so that in the future, if something were to happen, you're not doing this detective work, but you're just going to one main source to say, okay, let's pull up, a, a, I don't know, a way of kind of visualizing everybody's dental records. And I know, I know, now we're going to big, you know, big government and stuff like that, but the, we do it at the VA, right? I, that's 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 where I'm getting the idea from. The VA, we can literally see what each of our patients, who they saw, when they saw them, and so forth. So we really weren't chasing dentists or chasing doctors or anybody else. And that's why I bring that question up. I, I know people will talk about, you know, big government and so forth. Let's ignore all that and let's talk about how this would be benefited. Well, the, the in an ideal world, it would be great, but the privacy issue overwhelms it. One of the things that I didn't talk about is in the old days, when you had a mass disaster, you would have what they call walking the tables. And you'd have 30 charts, if it was 30 people, 30 charts of the ante, 30 more of charts of the postmortem. And you'd say, wait a minute. Somebody had a crown on number 19, and you tried doing that. Well, that wasn't feasible in New York because you had 3,000, nearly 3,000 victims. So there is a program called WinID, um, was designed by a dentist who was a computer science major. And the program is a filtering program where you would look at x-rays, and you have two screens. One is the anti-mortem and the post-mortem, where it filters everything out. Would it be ideal to have something like that? It, it could be the case. It is done for NCIC, for people that go missing, where they have a central repository of the dental records of that. So somebody may go missing in one state, and a body will be recovered in another state, and that allows them to go back and compare it and, and do that. Um, I'm not so sure 
that having a, a database of 330 million people to go through would be practical. I mean, <laughs> let's suppose you say, you know, you start filtering it out. Even if you start filtering, you may go from 330 million, you're still down to like 50,000, which it may be difficult. And especially where the younger people with the emphasis on prevention seeing less restorative materials, it, it makes it much tougher to do a dental identification without if there's no restorative materials. Okay. It's not impossible where you can use trabecular bone pattern and sinuses, but it is much more difficult. So when you go to one of these sites uh, and you find remains, are you you have your own setup for taking radiographs of the remains and comparing it to existing records? Well, there's actually the three teams. So the anti-mortem team is contacting families. They have what they call a Vic. D-Mort has a family assistance center where they will talk to the families, find out who the dentists were, We'll contact the dentist, get the records sent to us, and set up an anti-mortem database. Um, the post-mortem will go out either in the field or in sometimes with a criminal case, the FBI will do it. They'll do the recovery, and they'll do the post-mortem database. What was your question again, Kyle? I'm sorry. I- uh, so if you're, say, out, out in the, the field in Somerset where there was the plane crash and there's remains that are kind of scattered about, uh, if you're trying to compare pre or uh anti-mortem post. record post uh are you taking x-rays or are you like how are you documenting oh, yeah. the, the parts that you find to the records whatever human remains come in are given a unique number they're x-rayed they're charting um it may be you know a maxilla but even if it's not done as identification you won't take that out because they may be separated from the mandible um okay. so everything that comes in is charted and x-rayed for documentation okay Okay. And recently, uh, you were with the whole COVID, uh, happening. Uh, has DMORT been activated for going to any of the, the areas in the country? Um, actually, DMORT was activated in New York and I just got back from two week deployment up there. I'm actually self quarantining at an undisclosed location so people don't freak out. (laughs) Um, and even though we had plenty of PPE and we actually had training on donning and doffing, tr- take, putting the PPE on and off and it's and meticulous down to the details, I felt more comfortable not going home to my family saying, look, I have an opportunity. I have a, a locale where um, my son's apartment where they fully stocked it for him. They put the exercise cycle here and I'm spending two weeks away before I go back. Um, we were working out of assisting the medical examiners up there. Um, and they had us at the different, they're overwhelmed up there and they had us working with the coroner, the OCME, the office of the chief medical examiner in New York, working in different boroughs. We were in Queens, Brooklyn, and Manhattan, assisting them in ways that they needed help. Um, may not necessarily have been doing dental, but in the, the expression on DMOD is leave your ego at the door and that whatever they need us to do, we were able to help out and we might be helping out in different means. So even if we're not technically even though we're forensic dentists, if we're not technically doing dental, there's other ways that we can help out up there. Um, obviously, I can't get into too much detail of what was done for privacy's sake, and but we were able to help out for two weeks up there um, in terms of setting up and getting everything ready to hope, help hope, you know, get these victims of it back to their families and help to the funeral directors and to help bury them and whatever will be done to help identify the people and get them back. Most of them, uh, in this case, unlike a mass fatality, 
they're, they know who they are. It was just a, a situation where they needed a situation overwhelmed the local authorities and they called in for federal aid. And that's where DeMort came in and helped out. It wasn't your typical traditional disaster like Katrina or 9-11 or even Haiti where they were called in to identify, identify people. Um, Haiti, after the earthquake several years ago, was the first time um, that DeMort had gone internationally to help identify Americans who were killed in the earthquake down there. I wasn't part of that operation. I had the misfortune of coming down with a kid. I was on a short list to go, and I came down with a kidney stone two days beforehand. <laughs> is that is that the excuse we're using? No. <laughs> Messing around. <Yeah. laughs> Messing around. No, but oh man, this is this is interesting. Okay, so if if somebody right uh, wants to get into uh, Demort, what are the first? I mean, what are the steps to take to get into the position that you're in? Do you have to? be a you know do you have to be a dentist and then from there take a residency or do you have to just take a few classes or what it's mostly just taking a few classes now there are dental assistants who are in it um there are hygienists who are in it so it's not just the dentist um what you do is you generally have to take one of those two classes at a time the AFIP class which doesn't is not given anymore or the University of Texas in San Antonio gives a class every other year and that's, those two are considered the gold standard. That's a start. Taking a few classes and then applying and taking as many classes as you want. Um, joining the American Academy of Forensic Sciences, even as an associate member, going to a few meetings, being involved in that, taking as many classes as you, you want. Um, University of Detroit at Mercy, University Mercy Detroit offers a, a three day class that's a great class. Um, so what you would do is take a few of these classes and then apply. Um, as I said, the, the application process takes a while, and they have a limited number of spots, so it's almost there has to be an opening for it, and then do a background check on you. The application process can take upwards of about a year. Um, I think I had applied when I took the class in 99, and it took about a year, year and a half. I had to apply a second time, and I was approved in the spring of 01, and I went for training, and then got called on 9-11, and it was... You know, can you go? Literally, they had called us within an hour of the, the first plane crash and said, can you go? And it was like, yeah, where do you, where do you want me to go? And the next day, we were boots on the ground. Um, with DMORT, you have to almost have a bag packed. And with uh, COVID-19, um, I had said to them, I was available to leave. And I gave them, I said, I'm, I'm leading a webinar on forensic dentistry on April 1st. I said, but anytime after that at 3.30, I'm, I'm free to go. Well, I checked my email in the midst of the webinar, and they wanted me up there that night. So I quickly, after the webinar, went home, had a bag packed, threw it together, and got on the train. It was in New York in about two hours. Um, where I live in, outside of Philly is close to the train line, so I was able to get that. But you almost have to be very flexible um, in terms of your schedule. I knew where I'm in Pennsylvania, and we were shut down for at least another six weeks. I had the flexibility of being able to go. And even, you know, as I said, self-quarantined myself for two weeks afterwards. So I knew it wasn't going to be an issue doing that. Um, with Katrina, I took, I was fortunate enough that I had people covering for me for the two weeks that I was out of the office. I, I imagine but, this takes a, a special kind of person to be able to go to some mass, ca mass casualty events where it's not a, a pleasant experience for anybody involved. It's not for everyone. Um, you take a step back and you say, all right, it has to get done. Um, there are, and the conditions you often are in are not always the most ideal. 
Um, we went down to Mississippi after the hurricane. It was half the, of the DMORTS teams were in Mississippi, half were in New Orleans. Uh, what a lot of people don't realize is the hurricane actually hit in Mississippi, made landfall. It's just the western part of it where the levees broke was in New Orleans. So they had us down in Mississippi. There was no running water, no electricity. Um, we were living in a tent where they had piped in some air conditioning. So it was either 40 degrees or 90 degrees outside. Um, bathroom facilities were a porta potty. Um, and it was very, you know, austere to say the least. And then you'd come out of the, the tent in the middle of the night. And then all of a sudden there was Air Force One landing. The president came several times. So it was kind of a surreal experience down there. And you have to be willing to, you know, put up with conditions like that where it was, it was tough. I mean, you're sweating. It's 95 degrees and, you know, you're going into an air conditioned area, but then you're coming out and it was, um, it was interesting. And you, you, you learn to, it's, as I said, it's not for everyone. Um, I got into it and I know some people that have deployed once and say, thank you. I'm never going to do this again. And other people who've gone several times, several of the people I was with up in New York, I'd been deployed with several times before. And when you've worked with people and when you're working with them, you know, 12 hour shifts, it can get stressful. And if you've worked with these people before and you've got a well-oiled team, it makes it a whole lot easier. Um, is this a, a voluntary um, organization or, or is it compensated financially? To their- we are. Okay. I mean, we're we're considered temporary federal employees. So when we're activated, um, we're paid at a, a GS, a federal level. Um, I would say anybody does it for the money. Um, it's, it, it does help out when you're out of the office a little bit, uh, especially, but I wouldn't say it's, it's not done for the money. And, but no, it is, you are a federal employee, so there is some compensation. The, um, so you, you got your, your first deployment was 9-11, is that right? 9-11. I went out to Western Pennsylvania with DMORT. And then when I came back a week later, somebody called me who was working in New York and said, we need people up here. Can you come up? And I went up once a week. I had an associate who was working in my office on Tuesdays. And what would happen was I would get up early on Tuesday morning and go up to New York, take the train up from October to May. That wasn't technically DMORT. That was what they called the dental ID team in New York. And then my second deployment was 2005 with Katrina, uh, where I spent two weeks. I flew out on September 11th on a one-way ticket. Wow. You want to get <laughs> this was four years after 2001. <laughs> you want to get pulled aside for extra scrutiny. That's one way to do it. Um, and most recently um, for deployment was what I just got back from in New York. Can now, I? In the mean, I'm sorry. Go ahead. No, no, no. I'm sorry. I, this is, I wanted to ask um, when it comes to insurance, right? Because Anytime you deal with dentistry, you have to deal with, you know, uh, um, disability. You have to deal with uh, um, uh, insurance to cover yourself just in case you get sued by anybody. Do you have a special insurance that you have to deal with or do you have to go through your own insurance company? How does that work? When we're deployed with DMORT, we're covered under the federal government. Okay. And and that's it. Um, When I work for the coroner's office doing cases there, I've checked with my liability carrier and they said it does cover me for that. Um, if somebody who's going to start going into court and doing their own business, they would need a separate policy, a separate rider for that. But when we're federal employees, we're covered under, and I forget the name of, um, there's a certain act that covers us when we're, but keep in mind, unfortunately, most, we're not doing 
dentistry per se as, you know, on patients. We're doing it for, um, you know, the, the deceased. So there may be, the only issue would really be negligence if we misidentified somebody. But in a mass fatality incident, there are so many checks and balances, you often have four or six people doing an identification. So it's really, and if even one person says, I'm not sure that what, that's who it is, they'll go back and start all over again. So, I mean, there is a lot of detail that goes in with, there's no unexplained discrepancies. Everything matches up. I mean, there may be one where on the record it says tooth number four has an MO and there's only one premolar in that quadrant and post one of somebody listed as number five. Yeah, they may have had ortho, but instead of taking out the first premolar, they took out the second. But I mean, those are the things that can be explained. Well, on a more local level, when you're working with a coroner, say, you know, a, an unidentified body is found that needs to be identified. Um, obviously, you don't know who the dentist is, who, where the records are coming from. Uh, is that something where if somebody's been reported missing for a while, all of their medical, all of their dental records are entered into a system that you can maybe compare things against? Or how does that process look? That is. Um, a lot of times there'll be what they call NCIC, National Criminal Database, is based in West Virginia, and they have that. So if they know who they think it is, even if it's years later, they can retrieve those dental records and get them for someone. Often okay. they'll, they'll find a body and they'll think they know who it is, and they'll present you with the dental records and say, here are the antemortem records. Can you compare this to the, the remains? And you can do the identification in sometimes almost instantaneously. Wow. Um, so I know you work with the coroner, but have you actually worked, uh, because again, you're doing this uh, nationally, have you worked with like CIA, FBI, or anything like that for any big cases, any like, and you don't have to name any cases. No, actually, I, I don't. Actually, the FBI has their own forensic dentist on staff. Okay. They actually have a dentist who works for them who's done that, and I have no idea. I mean, mostly, you know, what we've done is just working with the assignment, the um. I'm region three, the, the demort. Anything above that would be above my pay grade. <laughs> <laughs> so it, I'm going to kind of transition a little bit, if you don't mind, because uh, we, we brought up in the beginning a little stint in law school. Uh, I get what what made you get into to law when you were already having a, a successful dentistry uh, profession? Um. I had always had an interest in it, and I was in practice about 15 years, and my kids were starting kindergarten and first grade, and I thought, you know, I've got the practice kind of where I want it, I don't want to say humming, and I thought there was a situation where it presented itself, and I said, you know what, part of it was I'd broken my arm. I had a freak accident in 98. I slipped and fell and was out of work for two months, and I thought, what would I do if I couldn't practice dentistry? And when I got back to work, I looked into it, and I found this a distance learning program, which at the time was cutting edge, and now it's become the norm. And I was able to come home from work and sit down and go to class at night. And it was an example for my kids where, you know, it wasn't like dad's watching TV or playing on the computer. He's studying as well. And it was a good role model for them. And I've used it in the office in terms of risk management. I've done some lecture on risk management as well. But I've got my, my staff we look at things. My patients generally do not know that I have a law degree, and that's intentional. Um, but in terms of my staff, I'll do. And how we look at things from a risk management point of view, um, and it permeates almost everything we do, from every decision we make in terms of how we run the practice. And I'm not saying running scared, 
and I don't want to say I'm, I'm practicing scared, you look at things from a risk aversion. How to, what can we do to minimize risk? Doing things and, and looking at it from that point of view. And I've got everybody in the office trained to be on the same wavelength. Um, and it was something that, um, as I was saying, I just, it presented itself and it was a good opportunity. And I, I enjoyed it. And I, I learned a lot in terms that I could take back to the dental office in terms of just the forms that we use, consent forms, um, different things and, contracts and i've read through contracts when i purchased equipment or with insurance companies that i've put lines going out of it um one was it an insurance carrier sent a form in that said oh um if we go bankrupt you can't build a patient it's like yeah i don't think so <laughs> scratch that out and send it back to them um but i've been able to read contracts and and know and look at things very differently so and it was just something that it was you know, just to have it. And I'd given some thought to it when it, when I was in dental school trying to do the joint degree and things just didn't work out. And 15 years later, it did. And I may have been the only guy who ever took a bar exam with no, no pressure on him. I walked in <laughs> whistling and humming and all these people whose lives depend on it were, were, were stressed out. And I'm like, okay, if God forbid I fail, I've still got the practice. I've got my wife. I've got the kid. And I was fortunate enough to pass it on my first attempt because I wasn't taking it the second time. <laughs> <laughs> well, let me ask you a question. What do you think is the biggest thing that dentists do or the biggest mistake dentists make when it comes to, like you said, consent forms? And how do you prevent that? And what do they need to do to kind of make sure that, you know, they cover themselves as much as possible? Ooh, that almost sounds like we're practicing law and this is going into different states where I really can't. Oh, have... no, I mean, just in, I'm talking about just yeah. in general, like no, any just, advice, any say, advice. I mean, I know in Pennsylvania and, and I'm not licensed in Pennsylvania, I'm licensed in California, so I can't say. But I know in Pennsylvania, as a dentist, we are taught we have to get written consent for any surgical procedure. Right. That means endo and oral surgery. And your liability carriers give you sample forms. So it's really, it's great. We borrow ours from my carrier, and we've got 100 copies printed out, and we sit down. And I look at informed consent as a process. It's not a form. You're letting the patient know what's going to be done. You're answering their questions. You're making sure, you know, it's witnessed. And you go through so that they're comfortable knowing what's going, what's being done, and you've answered their questions. And as I said, informed consent, it's not a form, it's a process. And I've gone places and I've seen things where the front desk will hand you the form. Here, sign this with the informed consent. And I'm like, yeah, that's, that's not, that's not what it is. And, but you know what? I kept my mouth shut. It was, it was somebody, a practitioner near me. And I was like, you know what? Not my business. I'm just, I, you know, I wouldn't do it in my office. And, you know, you respect privacy. And we, we do that where, um, two of my opportunities are right next to each other. And I bought, this gets off a little bit on what you're saying. I bought a white noise machine on Amazon for $20 that if we have a patient in both operatories, we'll turn it on. And the patient operatory, the second one, can't hear what's being said in the first operatory. Okay. Just little things like that. That's smart. That just, it gives somebody privacy, and it doesn't have to cost a lot of money. And somebody doesn't say, oh, I heard the conversation that was in the next room. Yeah, that's that's one thing I, I've always wondered about with these uh different companies doing office designs and it's a more of an open concept where there's no doors. It's kind of in one operatory to the next with, you know, no solid wall separating it is you can hear everything going on next door and uh, the conversations that are taking place. And I always wondered how that doesn't break HIPAA because I assume that it does. The funniest story, HIPAA story I have is 
years ago, I went to a physician for something about my arm and I go check in. It's a huge waiting area. And the woman whispers to me, this is our HIPAA form. Fill it out. And I hand it to her and I go sit down across the waiting room and she yells, Michael Cater, what are you here for? (laughs) (laughs) I think she missed the training on HIPAA. And that's another thing that we do in the office. We're training the HIPAA, OSHA. We, you know, having a law degree, I look at it for why they're having us do it. And I'm like, okay, I may not always agree with it, but I understand that we have, we're trying to follow it as best as possible. Okay, well, then let me ask another question follow up so that it's not really specific to anything. But how many times uh, a month, a year, do you guys actually get together to train for the HIPAA, OSHA, and kind of review? We team. actually, we put aside two days a year. Okay. One in the spring, one in the fall, where, um, like every other year we'll do CPR training in the morning. In the afternoon, we'll have somebody come do OSHA. In the second part of the year, it'll be a HIPAA, like three or four hours in the morning in the afternoon, where we just clear it that way. We clear the schedule and the staff know I'm going to bring in lunch and that's what we're going to be talking about and dealing with. And if they have ideas on, Hey, can we do this or can we change that? And you know, they'll do it during the year. But it's a great way to have an open discussion where, you know what, hey, why don't we try doing it this way instead of that? And I'll listen and, and take everybody's suggestions to heart. Hmm. So uh, any is there has there been any uh, anything that you learned with your law experience that applies to any of the forensic stuff that uh, maybe a dentist coming in that hasn't had the law training? Uh, the the I, I assume the forensic teams or forensic classes teach you everything you need to know, but does the law background give you kind of a more of a leg up when it comes to dealing with the forensics? Actually, it has. And um, what happens is they'll tell you, your risk management will tell you, never give up the original records, never give up the original records, except when it's a forensic case. And we've had situations where there are exceptions to HIPAA when it comes to dealing with a coroner's office. And we would call for records and they would say, you know, we're calling from the coroner's office and, you know, they say, well, we can't give you the records. Well, yeah, we've got a subpoena. We need them. And I had more than one person say to me, look, when I hear that from a lawyer, I'll, I'll understand that. I said, well, I can give you my bar card number. <laughs> oh, okay. So, and that was kind of about a half a dozen times where, and I'm, where it did come in handy being able to give them. Um, code of federal regulations. Look, here's what you're looking for. And sometimes with insurance companies, they would kick it up to the legal department and they would tell us the same thing. We'd say, no, here's the exception. And when they told me I have to hear from a lawyer, then that was sort of like I was talking peer to peer and it suddenly it changed the conversation. Like, okay, what do you need? Wow. So yeah, that came in handy. Did, um, your experiences with, with COVID so far, uh, in New York since you had additional training as far as personal protective equipment, donning things on and off. Uh, this is all pure speculation, uh, but any any advice for any dental offices out there uh, looking forward on what they might have to do to protect themselves, the staff, the patients? Um, I think it's still in a state of flux, yeah. and I think it's going to take a while for it to work itself out. Um, I'm not sure. I would hope we all want to protect our patients in the best way possible. And I'm not sure right now, you know, I know there were some issues in Pennsylvania recently where even for emergency care it was shut down. And um, 
I'd like to think that we're going to do the best we can for our patients and protect them as best as possible. And whether that means longer appointments, doing things differently, I'm not sure specifics. Um, I have a feeling that within six months, you're going to see N95 masks in the dollar store, that there's going to be a surplus of them with everybody manufacturing them. Whether that becomes a standard, you know, hopefully, whether visors become the standard, I'm not sure. Um, I know things are going to change. I'm not sure in what way, though. And I, I wouldn't want to speculate. I, I could, but I mean, I just have my own opinions, but I'm not really sure what I'd like to be like many of us. I want to get back to work. I mean, yeah. right. you know, you know, right now we're looking at May 15th and the, some of the states announced. I'm not optimistic that we'll be back before May 30th, but I want to get back to seeing my patients. Um, and how we'll just try to do the best we can and, you know, follow the parameters by the CDC. Smarter people than me are setting that up. Okay. Yeah. Well, okay. Uh, so we'll end it here, but I want to ask you, and I think we ask a lot of these, uh, a lot of people that come on. We want to ask you, you know, where do you see dentistry going now that we have kind of been uh, hit with something so traumatic, a pandemic? You know, where do you see dentistry going now with all the experience and all the years that you've, and I mean, multiple degrees that you have? <laughs> where do you, no, no, no. No, it's like a fine wine, right? It just gets better with age, right? So where do you see dentistry going now? Okay. And this is getting a little bit off in the COVID-19. Yeah, yeah. In, in, when I was in dental school, there was a famous Forbes article. And I don't know if you've ever heard of it. It was in 1984. And it predicted that within five years, every dentist is going to be working for a corporate for Sears. That's it. It's going to be the death of private practice. That was in 1984. Turn it around 35 years later, 36 years later, you hear the same thing again. It's like, oh, my God, we're all going to be working for corporate in five years. There's always a place for the private practitioner, my, my field. Now, is it going to be tougher than it was? Yeah, especially when you're coming out. But in a lot of places, you know, I don't – I see dentistry. There's going to be a, a toehold for corporate, but I still think the private practitioner, maybe in a partnership or even a small group, is always going to be there. That's where I see the future of dentistry. I mean, we've seen the technology, technological advances with, with digital, with milling, with um, the, the materials and how they've improved and the emphasis on prevention. And, you know, the, the, the interaction with um, people are realizing the correlation with medical health and dental. And I, I see it's more um, of a dentistry is it's evolving, but it's still I mean, it's still a place for what for what we do um, in terms of. COVID, how that's going to impact it, I think, in terms of we've been on the front lines of PPE and prevention and infection control. You have to, for years, we started wearing gloves 35 years ago, the masks, sterilizing the hand pieces, checking everything. We've been at the forefront of it. And I think it's just, it'll be not so much a paradigm shift, as they talk about, but a baby step in terms of changes that are done. If we have to wear a Tyvek suit, so what? If we have to go from a regular mask to an N95 mask, okay, those are changes. But we're not going from a drastic change, I think. And it may be something that's done to minimize aerosols in, in an operatory. But I think it'll be just an evolution of the way we've come. From If you look at the pictures of the dentist in the 1950s with the short sleeve, no gloves, no mask, no glasses. So that's kind of where I see us evolving and making some small changes with this, hopefully, but not, I don't see us turning into an 
operating room. Um, it's just not feasible. It's not practical. Now, is there, uh, closing everything up, going from, uh, forensic dentistry, demort to law to COVID, is, is there anything that we didn't ask you that you wanted to talk about or, uh, did we cover everything that, uh, that you wanted us to? No, you've covered everything. I'm, I'm sitting here for another 13 days doing all these online webinars and binge watching everything on TV. I can't wait to get back to my family. I, while they told us that we didn't have to self quarantine, looking at the severity of this disease and how you can't predict who's going to be impacted by it, I just thought when I have the opportunity and the means to be able to, to isolate myself, I'm doing that. Um, no, I, we, we pretty much covered it. Um, I hope I've given the listeners an overview of what forensic dentistry and a little bit of DMORT. Um, you can do some research on it. Um, if you do Google DMORT, D-M-O-R-T, you can find images, um, some of which I really have no idea was taken. Um, I was at a conference in Las Vegas a couple of years ago, and the speaker puts up a picture of DMORT doing an identification in, in Las Vegas, and I looked at it, and it was a picture that was taken inside the morgue with photography. It was not a dead body. It was, it was of the dentist, the dental team with photography was taboo. And one of the people in the picture was me. And, <laughs> and, and I went up to her and I said, where did you get this picture? And she goes, Google images. And I'm like, so somehow it made it into the public domain, but, um, you can find out. And there are people, there are photos that have been allowed in terms of what's been out there. So if somebody goes to Facebook and looks up DMORT or goes to um, Google, you can find out what's being done. And um, the NDMS, the National Disaster Medical Service, has released information and put out press releases. And you can see what's being done um, in terms of the photography that they've allowed. I obviously didn't take anything photography. We're not allowed to. So anything that they had vetted in terms of the public information officer released, and you can read about more of it, read about it there. Well, well, thank you so much for, yeah, I, I know you have a little bit of free time right now, but I, I, we definitely appreciate you coming on and talking to us and educating people about yeah. what you do. This was, this was very educational. Uh, is there any, like an email or anything that you feel comfortable giving to people that may want to contact you for more information? Um, yeah, I'll give you my email address. I've got, um, a couple of them. The one that I would say I use is forensic dmdjd at aol i'll spell it f-o-r-e-n-s-i-c d-m-d-j-d at aol dot dot com i'm a dinosaur i still use aol for certain accounts <laughs> as long as you don't use dial-up like you know we used to you're fine you know <laughs> you know what it is? when you have an account and you've had it for many years to give i still have gmail accounts but i keep that one because some so many people have it and they email me on it that it's easier than changing it that's it that's it that's awesome <laughs> That is awesome. Well, thank you so much for taking the time uh, to come on and educate us about this. I mean, I can guarantee you more than half of dentists don't even know this opportunity is out there. So for you to come on um, and, and educate all of us, including all our listeners, is really appreciated. So thank you so much. Really do appreciate you. My pleasure. I look forward to listening to some of your other webinars. Too. Oh, man, appreciate po it. Po your podcast. Yeah, well, that's okay. Yeah, you make it more formal than it really is. <laughs> Just Kyle and I <laughs> hanging out. <laughs> <laughs> thank you well thank you right. guys take care thank you for listening to Tooth Be Told if you have any questions or comments please email us at realdentist with an S at gmail.com that's realdentist R-E-A-L dentist with an S at gmail.com 
Remember, the opinions on this podcast are just that, our professional opinions. The final decision about your health should be made by you and a trusted dental professional.